Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Inside LA, Long Beach, um, Sunday set. <clears throat> On this beautiful summer day, you all came here to do nothing. With all the options. An amazing Long Beach. So... So today, a couple weeks ago, we talked on form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Um, how many people were there for that, that talk? Quite a few of you, okay. Um, quite, a, quite a big topic, so I thought we'd continue that a little bit. Um, so the title I think I put today was Clarifying the Natural State. So what is kind of this emptiness state, clarifying what it is in practice. We didn't get too much into the practice of it. Um, so I want to preface this, that this is, you know, I'm always kind of a little weary of bringing this topic even up, you know, we have such little time together because um, it's so broad and there's usually so much preliminary practices that we do to kind of start talking and practicing this. Um, but most of all, because um, I don't want to turn anyone away because it doesn't make any sense. Because, <laughs> you know, without that kind of the proper um, motivation and, and, and kind of from the text purification, it doesn't really land. And therefore, we could say, oh, this is kind of not for me. I remember living in Atlanta Medicine Buddha, and we'd have three months all summer long. Uh, Kim Sherman Perche would be teaching emptiness, and um, I went up to see. I went up to see one of my friends. I said, "You know, are you coming down? You know, teaching's about to start." And she's like, "I don't do emptiness. <laughs> <laughs> no emptiness. <laughs> Never go." And I wonder. I was like, "Well, this is." And I kind of what turned her off about it, and yet it's the really the pinnacle experience, you know, of <clears throat> of the teaching is to experience this, and it's called a bunch of different names, you know, obviously in Buddhism we use emptiness, you could say oneness, you could, um, uh, Mingar Rinpoche likes to say, it's not one, but it's not two. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> of course, to have one, this is part of emptiness, is interdependence, if they have one, we need zero and we need two. This is interdependence. To have the number three, the three, number three does not exist on it, on its own, from its own side, right? Three needs two, and it needs four to exist. And so, like all phenomena, all phenomena needs the subject-object, even needs our recognition of mind to exist. So nothing exists from its own side. So this is actually part of, part of, part of it. So I'll just kind of preface it like this. So, and also too, maybe. This is just kind of new, this part, me being on the path for a long time. And I know when I read, actually, this book right here was the most frustrating thing I've ever read in my life. My dear friend, 
and, and teacher, really, Dorje. When we started, he was one of my first um, real, real close friends in Tibetan Buddhism, and he said, oh, you know, th this, is, this is the book for you. You know, you, this is the Dzogchen Longchenpa. And I read it, and it didn't make any sense. It was the first time in my life, and I usually I was pretty good usually at picking up some spiritual stuff and kind of getting it, you know. I said, what the hell is this, you know? <laughs> so frustrating. I don't know what happened. <clears throat> it was somewhere after my long retreat. <clears throat> you know, this would bring tears to my eyes reading it, you know, just, just the words alone. Just something happened, I don't know. So <clears throat> I just... Just say this as kind of a, a preface and as we go through it and just be very patient. And I'm really talking to myself here, just being really patient with it. <clears throat> so to really, to, to practice this first, unpacking, you know, what is emptiness? And again, very quickly, um, because I do want to get into some instruction today. There's three elements that we look at when we look at phenomena as being empty, what we say, from their own side, and that's inter interdependence, what I just talked about, impermanence, and also egolessness. So there's no thing in the thingness. So all phenomena <clears throat> is impermanent, always changing. So there's no fixed thing. Even though you could say that guy's a jerk, he might not still be a jerk. He's changing. Right? But when we look at him, like that guy's definitely a jerk. But we forget that he is impermanent. He might have had a life-changing experience. And so when you see him, that fixed label jerk, that jerkness could have been removed from some sort of life experience. That jerk is also interdependent. So he might be a jerk to you, but he's somebody's husband, somebody's father, somebody's son. Right? So he's not inherently existing just as a jerk. Maybe he's multiple things. Jerk some of the time, but you see. <clears throat> so, interdependent, and then also part of your mind. You know, you've, you were a part of that play to see him like this. Also, in his jerkness, this is emptiness, his foreign form is emptiness, he's also a Buddha manifesting as a jerk for you. <laughs> to test the limits of your compassion and your ability to see emptiness <clears throat> he's also empty from its own side egoless so and this is better so we could take this with us with, with us as aggregates aggregates of these uh, ingredients of us as as a, as a being so we take our body and mind emotions thoughts beliefs and we all put them together and we say I same thing we do with all phenomena you know we take a phone or a car or anything but there's no car in the car so this is the th there's no thing in the thing so this is the last aspect of emptiness is that if you look at a car point to the car where's the actual car in the car could anyone say where the car is What part of the car is the car? Nobody. When when does it become when does it become a car? Like on an assembly line, when does it become a car? Because well, parts are together and then it's labeled a car. I mean, because it's got all the things it's supposed to have to be a car. That's about it. So, 
usually what we point to here is functionality. So we're actually not looking at the thing, we're looking at the function of the thing. A car is a car if it acts like a car. Yeah? You could put like a piece of plywood down and you could put like little like skate skateboard wheels on it, you know, <laughs> and then you know you could attach something to it and you could it's, you call it a car if it functions like a car. Yeah? So we're really not labeling things we're labeling functions of things, but inherently existing, there's no thing in the thing. Yeah. Now, why why does this matter? Why is this important? And more importantly, what does this have to do with our suffering? Is because we're not reacting to the thing, we're reacting to the functionality that we labeled on top of this no thing thing. <laughs> do that again. So we're reacting to the label that we put on top, that the label is in coordinates with the, with the function and not the thing. So in other words, this thing, car, acts like a car. We impute on top of it, you're a car. Now, when we say car, we already have a fabrication in mind what a car is supposed to do. A, a car is supposed to turn on and take us from point A to point B. When the car stops being able to do this, we get upset. Why? Because it's a car. Because we we have labeled on top of this mass of of, of parts, carness. Right. <laughs> so when the car breaks down, which it's it's interdependent in nature too. To even run, it needs gasoline. It needs the motor. It needs all these different factors. It needs you to drive it. Right. It can't drive. Well, now they can drive themselves. Yeah. Um, so there's all these factors, but when it breaks down, the carness, like this imputation, says you're a car. That's what you're supposed to do. How can you not do what you're supposed to do? This is the attachment. The attachment is not to the thing. All of Buddha talked about this craving, desire, and all this stuff. It's empty of inherent existence, and we're putting on top of it that which causes us suffering. Right? So we impute something that will cause us suffering, and then when it stops acting like this, we suffer. You see? So we could both take away, this is wisdom, seeing things as they are, taking away the object of the desire itself. Right? So we could remove it before it could even do it. Before it even can allow that to arise. So when the cell phone, how many of you, okay, so supposed to work as a phone, no reception. Because ah, ah. why? It's a phone. And we did do this to people, you know, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. We have an imputation on top. What a husband should be like, what a girlfriend should be like. And they do something outside of our concept, but they're there's no girlfriend in the girlfriend. There's no boyfriend. There's no husband in the husband. But if a husband does something that's not husband-like, you know, I say, your husband's broken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your husband's broken, then we get upset. But he's interdependent. He's impermanent. He's shifting. He's changing. He's not just this one thing. So we're looking for what's the undercurrent, what is beneath all of those labels and, and fabrication and concept and 
all this overlay. You know, think in terms of quantum physics. Everything's energy, but it's manifesting as all these different things. Vibration, vibrating at different frequencies. And these vibrations at different frequencies, we label. Chair, wall. Right? We draw lines around it. Yeah? And so this is... Like what we usually do is we work into the substrates of happiness. So what I mean by this is very layers of happiness. So I have two examples from just the last couple of days. Last night had a great date inside LA, but it was a really long day. I go to get on the 405 from Santa Monica. It's 9:30 at night. What am I thinking? It's 9:30 at night. No traffic. There's no traffic. Of course there was traffic. <laughs> because always traffic. Always. <laughs> so working within duality, my refuge was home. My place of refuge was getting home. This was my place of refuge. Welcome. Was I looking for emptiness in that moment? I should have. I wasn't. My place of refuge was home. So the substrate, so we don't, we don't go back to the primordial essence of sense of ease. Because we're working in duality. As soon as I get home, then I'm going to be happy. Right? But then when I get home, I'm still within delusion. Right? I'm still in the world of concept and imputation. The concept that... 405, not good. <laughs> home, good. But when I get home, I'm still in this mindset. When I get home, I want quiet. Quiet, good. It's hot out. It's been hot, you know, so our door is open. My neighbor's door is open. His TV's on. Loud. <laughs> Loud, not good. Right? So I see I'm still in it. I'm working in the substrates of happiness instead of where's the essence of happiness. You see? So I was in a meeting earlier this week. The meeting was really boring, you know? So again, my refuge was get out of this meeting, right? And go to lunch. Like that was my refuge. Yet in that meeting, I was able to, you know, watch this arise. Like, look at, look at this. And then I knew that once I go to lunch, something else could be whatever, yeah? So I just took that moment. And I prompted this by a concept. I prompted this by everything is perfect as it is. Like, this is right where I'm supposed to be. Because this is where I am. Right? Hang out with truth. The Buddha loved hanging out with truth. The truth is, I'm right where I'm supposed to be because this is where I am. So I just let that, I just let that kind of be. Right? And I kind of took in the magic of the moment. Right? I tried to see where this is it. So I'll read just a couple things, continuing on with a little bit of where we left off. Reading the opposite of, okay, if we can subtract all the concepts and all this stuff and move into what is the essence of infinite potentiality where all these things come from. I'm going to read a little something from Tilko Kinsey. Where can we abide in something that is not impermanent 
that's more reliable and sustainable, right? It's not impermanent. It's not interdependent. And it's free from the expectations of thingness, right? Where, how can we abide there? Now, this is consistent. Check in with your awareness. You see it? Is your awareness there? Absolutely. It's always waiting for us. It's always hanging out. We're forgetting all the time, but it's hanging out. So this ground, what we're really searching for is a really ground safe place to be, right? And I love Byron Katie's quote, emptiness is the firmest ground you will ever stand on. Emptiness is the firmest ground you will ever stand on. Right? We want something very reliable. And this is it. So Dilgo, Dilgo Kinsei, an amazing Dzogchen master, the presence of awareness in the primordial state has no bias towards enlightenment or non-enlightenment. The ground of being which is known as pure or original mind is a source from which all phenomena arise. It is known as the Great Mother, as the womb of potentiality in which all things arise and dissolve in natural self-perfectedness and absolute spontaneity. This ground of being, which is known as pure or original mind, is a source from which all phenomena arise. It is known as the Great Mother, as the womb of potentiality in which all things arise and dissolve in natural self-perfectedness and absolute spontaneity. <clears throat> so this is another one from the Zen master, the Zen master Hung Pao, or Hung Po. This one's a little longer, but just let it go ahead and sink in here. Our original Buddha nature is in highest truth devoid of any atom of objectivity it is void omnipresent silent pure it is glorious and mysterious and mysterious peaceful joy and that is all enter deeply into it by awakening to it yourself that which is before you is it in its fullness utterly complete there is not beside. Even if you go through all the stages of the Bodhisattva's progress towards Buddhahood, one by one, when at last, in a single flash, you attain full realization, you will only be realizing the Buddha nature which has been with you all the time. And by all the foreign stages, you will have added nothing to it. You will come to look upon all those eons of work and achievement as no better than unreal actions performed in a dream. This is why Buddha said, I truly attained nothing from complete, unexcelled enlightenment. He also said this Dharma is absolutely without distinctions, neither high nor low, and its name is Bodhi. It is pure mind, which is the source of everything and which 
whether appearing as sentient being or as Buddhas, as the rivers and mountains of the world which have form, as that which is formless, or as penetrating the whole universe, absolutely without distinctions, there being no such entities as selfness or otherness. So the other aspect that's kind of sketchy when we talk about this is it is always telling you don't practice. <laughs> like you could practice for countless eons and it'll be worthless once you realize emptiness. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Very cool. I'm gonna go on retreat now. Um, and this is the paradox, you know, this is the paradox of that which gets you there is not it. Like, we're learning everything to throw it away. And yet, at the same time, it's the merit, really, that gets us there. Right? But, and again, we just, and because it's, you know, like the term kill the Buddha, you know, it's that, it's that all of the words are false, all the teachings are false, because all the teachings are in conceptual mind, and all the teachings are in self and other, and the teachings are, I'm not, I am not enlightened, and I need to get enlightened. But emptiness is form, form is emptiness, so there's no non-enlightenment. There's only recognition of non-enlightenment. Non-enlightenment's a concept. So, and this is where we get into relative and ultimate truth. Yes, that's true. And like Suzuki Roshi would say, you're perfect as you are, and you have work to do. So this is it. Yes, you're perfect as you are, but since you don't realize your perfection, you better get to work. <laughs> right? And we practice simple things, like being kind. And this is another thing that happens. Well, if it's all empty and nothing's really phenomena doesn't exist and all this stuff, then, then neither does um, wrongdoing. Not true. Because this is relative reality. It's still real. <laughs> From an ultimate sense, so Buddha would say, this is, you know, Prajnaparamita, ultimate truth and all this stuff. Now, you know, do metta. <laughs> And meta is very relative, right? Like, may I be happy, may you be happy, right? This is the, the way that we realize this is through relative bodhicitta, through everyday kindness, right? It's through everyday sila, everyday kindness, patience, all of those things. This is the purification of mind. So there's, a, there's lots of teachings and lots of stories that you hear that it's a liberation upon hearing. So a lot of the suttas, a lot of these very words just being read, for a lot of people, that's, that's all that they need to reach the clear light, the clear light of mind. Just that. Bam. Why? It's because they've gained all the merit of ethics practice, you know, purification of mind, love, loving kindness and compassion. So without any, any of that, this is useless. Like these are just useless words, because we'll, we'll never be able to get beyond concept, underneath, and really see. So, how much time are we doing on time? Okay. Um,
Okay. Oh, let me read this one. Wusin. I don't know where Wusin came from. I never heard of Wusin. How many people have heard of Wusin? This is a weird thing. Even my long-term spiritual buddies, all of a sudden this book appeared, but no one had heard of Wusin. He's right before, or right after uh, the passing of Con, um, Confucius, but not quite into Chan, you know, Zen Buddhism in China. But anyway, he's an amazing non-dual teacher. This little beautiful poem. This is all poems. Like, look at their little short, pithy poems. There's like, must be a thousand of them or something. It's crazy. And they're all very pith, very pith instructions. I could pretty much pick anywhere from the book. Essence is the size of the sky. It holds the body and the mind as if they were rose petals in its hands. Read that again. Essence is a size of the sky is the size of the sky. It holds the body and the mind as if they were rose petals in its hands. So pretty. Lao the softest thing in the world will, will overcome the hardest. Non-being can enter where there is no space. Therefore, I know the benefit of unattached action. The wordless teaching and unattached action are rarely seen. Okay, so we, we're going to do some practices from... A text called Point Out the Dharmakaya. It's the ninth Karmapas. You heard of the 14th Dalai Lama, where there's the 17th Karmapa is now in, in existence, in form, um, in the, the Kagyu school. Uh, the Dalai Lama is ahead of the Glupa school. Um, so we were battling, like, who has seniority. The Karmapa has been reincarnated a few hundred years longer. <laughs> um, the ninth Karmapa wrote three texts on Dzogchen. The most pith text is pointing out the Dharmakaya. So Dharma means truth, Kaya. There's three major Kayas or realms of, of um, awareness. The Dharmakaya, Sabogakaya, Nirmanakaya. The Sabogakaya and Nirmanakaya are like the, like the spirit, more formless realm, but not ultimate realm, like more what we call like spirit. And then there's a form, the form realm. And these three, ultimate truth and then kind of more duality, are always at play. So this is pointing out the Dharmakaya, the Truthkaya. Usually you would have this done by a teacher, but there was a time when Tibet was um, not doing so well, and they knew that the teachers were going to be, have to flee, and so they had to send out texts so you could actually point out the true nature of mind yourself like through practice and so this this is safe to teach um, some of this is not not allowed to teach but this is um, safe to share um, and it's just these little pith instructions on how we could just see our own true nature of mind and 
And so I'm just going to ask some questions and I'm going to invite you to look at your mind. And um, I urge you to look, but don't look too hard. <laughs> look, but don't look to find anything. <laughs> so go ahead and just come into a place of Looks relaxed for you. We won't be sitting for too long. I know that I am breathing in, breathing out. I know that I am breathing out. So just turning on the light switch of awareness, the part of you that knows you're here, you're alive, you're breathing. Start pointing your awareness to your thoughts. And taking a look at your thoughts, see if you could notice from where do they arise? From where do your thoughts arise? How does the thought come into your experience or come into being? How does it come into your experience?
And if you notice thoughts abiding, so they're present, how does it abide? How is a thought present in your mind? What does it mean that a thought is present? Where does it abide? Can you find the exact location of the thoughts? When thoughts go, how do they go? And where do they go? So just relaxing, we're going to do another one, so just allow your mind to relax for a moment. These practices take a lot of shamatha, a lot of concentration, right? So all these, these things, the preliminary practices, concentration, right effort, non-judgment, they're all in play, right? So just keep it really open and just looking. These are all invitations to look, be really wary of the mind, 
adding something. You're just looking. That's the answer. The answer is when you look. It's very simple. It's not like, oh, I find them here, or wait, you know, maybe my memories. It's just that that's more mind. Remember, you're looking at thoughts. Not with thoughts, <laughs> with that which is looking at thoughts. So it's the same thing. I say, look at the Buddha here. This is Medicine Buddha. Look at Medicine Buddha. You don't need to make up anything to think that I see Medicine Buddha. That's the answer. Can you see Medicine Buddha? You already know the answer. You don't need to say yes. You know the answer. Looking is the answer. So this is an invitation just to look. It's a neck down exercise. Not up here. Okay, allowing the eyes to close. Breathing in, I know that I am breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I am breathing out. So I'm going to ring the bell in a moment. And when I ring this bell, I want you to notice where do you experience the sound? Where do you experience the sound? I'm going to ring it one more time. I want you to notice. Where does your mind meet the sound? Does your mind go out and get the sound? Does the sound come into your mind? Where do the two meet?
I'm going to ring the bell again. This will be the bell to end this session, but also watch the bell, the sound of the bell arise in mind. Watch it as it abides. And then watch it all the way until you can't hear it anymore. Watch it appear in mind, abide in mind, and the full cessation of sound in mind. Allowing your eyes to open at your own pace. So we're running a little short on time for small groups, so I think it's better actually to just um, We'll just open it up to the larger group. Um, how was that? Yeah. Well, I found that I wasn't sure where the thoughts were coming from, but I definitely know some sort of dialectic words. After, you know, the downline. Mm -hmm. No, it's what, what came to me was, you know, maybe different uh, notions or, like, major concepts of, you know, maybe love or um, whatever. I mean, just big big ideas, you know, might have been the um, origin of them, but I don't know where they came from, but I know what happened after they came. Mm -hmm. cool. Thank you. Yeah. I just been reading Michael Pollan's book about changing your mind. He's mm. talking about psychedelics. Yeah. And using using them. But some of the <coughs> concepts that came out that I thought was really interesting is the idea of consciousness being out there somewhere in the universe. Mm -hmm. And that our brains are just like transmitters, like radio transmitters. That we just we just hone in, we tune in mm -hmm. to the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And but the thoughts are, are there. Every you know, mm -hmm. our consciousness is there, and I really like that concept mm -hmm. a lot. Thank you. One observation to what he's talking about um, with the the uh, the bell. Um, you were talking. You know, when when do you? Does the sound come to you? Do you come to sound? The sound, I felt the sound a split second before I heard the sound. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there were, I mean, it was that, that sense I could feel mm -hmm. that wave of sound and then I heard it. Mm -hmm. so. That's interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
I really like what you read about Hong Po, from Hong Po. Yeah. And it, it's also interesting that he spends a lot of time talking about the importance of effort. You know, you may die any minute. You may not live long enough to take another breath. So there's always that dichotomy in between, you know, effort and no effort mm -hmm. and, you know, effort preceding no effort. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, uh, the wordless dharma comes after reading a lot of words. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always that uh, dichotomy. Yeah. I like to say it takes effort to become effortless. <laughs> a lot of effort. A lot of effort. And these are the preliminaries, and it's not to be thrown out, it's especially uh, our culture is like that. I want, I want to read the end of the book. I want it now. And so we forget. And then we can spend a lifetime like going to the back of the book, or going to the end of the path, and then not doing the groundwork and wonder why it's not working. So... The groundwork is just as important, like, and you know, I just did it today. I mean, this whole book is on all on Nundro, almost the whole thing is all on preliminary practices. Brahma Viharas, um, you know, the four thoughts that might turn the mind towards Dharma for motivation, impermanence, you know, and then they get to the teaching at the very end, you know, and it's because that's what makes the mind this fertile ground, you know, to sprout realization. It seems to me that maybe um, the way that why we have to do all these steps is that, that the mind works by delusion and we, we delude ourselves all the time. So that's kind of a way of breaking down the delusions because you can't do mm -hmm. them all at once. So you have to do these little steps, mm -hmm. meditate, read, yeah. whatever, you know, in order to get to that point. Most people do. Yeah. Yeah. The lucky ones that just right, right. Get it. <laughs> So anyone else? How was that experience? Oh, sorry. I can't see you. Yeah. No, it's okay. Um, I found today, the co the conversation earlier today was a bit above my head. I felt a little out of, out of water. Um, but sitting and, and asking for to like to, to notice where the thoughts were coming, it was like silence. Like they wouldn't show up, you know, mm -hmm. like once they're finally called upon. Um, but then when they started to, to arise, I noticed that they only stayed when when I let them sink their hook in, right? Mm -hmm. we, and we've talked about mm -hmm. that before, that mm -hmm. idea of, of hooks. And I've always found that, uh, I suppose maybe a year ago, where you're talking about how those hooks get in, just the visual um, really illustrates how I feel when, when thoughts arise. And they only stick around if you feed them. And then you, you allow them to, to, to start thinking that train of thought. So I thought that was a, a very interesting exercise to just observe how that happens and, and to, to just watch it. Thank you. I really appreciated this, this practice that you led us through because one issue I had actually been thinking about recently was how can I look at things and not kind of be it or feel it because sometimes I feel like I dig in too deep with my looking, mm -hmm. so I wanted to try to learn how to look without absorbing the energy, without, you know, mm -hmm. to look lightly. Mm -hmm. So with your exercise, it helped me realize that when I'm hearing, I go, I'm going directly to the item. 
I mean, I know my ears are supposed mm-hmm. to be hearing, mm-hmm. but when you hit the singing bell, the singing bowl, mm-hmm. I hear it over there. So mm-hmm. then as you did it repeatedly, I tried focusing on being right here, mm-hmm. and I still feel it over there. Because I really feel like my awareness really isn't in my head. I feel like my awareness is kind of like a, you know, like a big bubble around my mm-hmm. head. So it was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. I appreciated it. And, um, and I guess the second bit was the feeling sensation was pretty cool. When you really pay attention, especially with a, with a bowl like that, it makes a lot of vibration. So you can feel it with your body kind of coming out. And then even when we can't hear it, you can still kind of feel it. Because I really feel like it, it, there's a part of that bell that continues that's beyond our hearing. Because I, I happened to buy a dong yesterday. <laughs> and so I was testing it, you know, like I was hitting it and kind of trying to measure the energy it was giving off. And I found that even after I could no longer hear the gong, it was still giving off positivity. Mm. So that's when I was, so it was just really cool how you happened to do this today after me having a uh, I want to go back to the part where you're talking about uh, where is the thought coming from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, what came to my thinking is that it's like digestion. It comes to my lungs first. That's how I know it, and then it breaks up to the senses. That's how I'm absorbing it. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a, after a while it becomes back where it came from. It just becomes, it diffuses to the ethers. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like that experience of, 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 of how I know it first is through my breath. Mm-hmm. That was good. I kind of um, first thought, well, they come from experiences and emotions. And then your next question was about experience. The thought, and I was, okay, so that kind of negates that process. I just ended up thinking of the car, back to the car. Mm. like. There's no car in the car, so mm-hmm. where's the car? So I kind of went there with my thoughts, like there's no thought in the thoughts <laughs> until I give them something. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's whatever I'm um, projecting on them or what their characteristics are or whatever, then mm-hmm. that's where the thought actually occurs. And that was really helpful. <coughs> that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I don't know if it's, I don't know, connected or not. You know, the, the practice, because we can kind of, after the experience, we can look at it like this and say, look, this is what I found out, and extract intellectually from that, you know. And yet, all of that, you don't need to even go back to the car or anything that you learned or anything. You're just looking, like, you know. So it, it's, it's this open, non-grasping mind. So you're looking at it with non-grasping mind, just really purely without any overlay or any kind of trying to figure it out. There's nothing to figure out. There's nothing to figure out. Nothing to figure out. There's nothing to figure out because we create a problem and then try to figure out the problem. There's no, there's no problem. There's no question. There's really no question. You know, so, I, you know, it, it's good to interpret that. And yet when we're doing it, this will be the, the engaged mind will want to jump onto it and say, you know, how many of us have had a really still experience in meditation? And you're like, oh, this is awesome. This is so amazing. I can't believe I'm so still in meditation. I'm doing so well. 
and you're like, oh, where did it go? <laughs> you know, and then how did you get here? You got there because you forgot for a moment to try to get there. Yeah. That's how you got there. Good reminder not to you know? like overthink or intellectualize. Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, all of the, my, my, I think everyone does this, you know, try to intellectualize the answer, you know. But with that said, it's good to extract and then, and, and to do what we did, like with the car thing, and then that way we could take that kind of with us, you know, that experience. I want to read something as a little, as we go here. <clears throat> Last little piece. Although we have seen Although we seem to think that the realization of the mind's nature is very difficult and hard to understand, why should it be? Is it not the case at all that it is some it is not the case at all that it is something far away from us, from which we need to search avidly? If anything, it's too close to us, because it's right here, it's right in our midst. And second, it is not because it is too subtle or too profound or too difficult to understand that we do not realize it. We do not see it because it is too easy. It's too simple. It's too obvious. It is not the case that there is anything we need to do to this mind's nature in order to realize it. Even if we were to accept that the mind's nature is within us and it's right here all the time, if we think that we have to somehow alter it or improve it, or get it into fit shape in order to be able to see it directly, then of course that would be difficult. But we do not have to do anything to the mind's nature. We do not have to change anything bad into anything good. We do not have to get rid of anything that exists or create anything that does not exist. If you simply see your mind as it is, just as it is right now, then in it itself will generate great meditation. This is therefore both easy and profound. So we'll close on that, allowing your eyes to close. Maybe we'll dedicate some merit. Maybe we'll generate some bodhicitta, just some thinking that that really the, the base of what we're talking about today is interconnectedness. If we remove concept, we're all in this together. And so therefore, what we have talked about today, what we have studied today, we're sending this out that somehow, some way, it could be a benefit to all beings. May all beings wake up to their own true nature. May myself and all beings be free from the suffering that we could sometimes cause ourselves. May all beings every, everywhere, without exception, be happy and free from suffering. Om Mani Padme Om.
You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.